0: welcome back to the yoga teacher training podcast i'm jeremy devins and today i'm joined by christine weber who is a yoga teacher and a leading world authority on the neuroscientific benefits of slow mindful movement and we're going to talk about some of her insights in sort of response to dr andrew huberman who is a very popular podcast sharing neuroscience and yoga related Yoga adjacent kind of topics, and from a yoga teacher perspective, we're going to hear Christine's uh, added nuance and detail and critique in some ways of what Huberman has shared and how we can integrate that as yoga teachers. So thank you for being here, Christine.
1: Oh, thanks so much for having me, Jeremy.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I'm I am enjoying uh, Dr. Huberman's podcast. I'm learning a lot there, but there's certainly a lot that I don't know that you likely have a lot more expertise and so i'm excited to hear yeah you know, i saw uh for the listeners i saw a post that you posted on facebook and some maybe your page or a group and i just thought it was wonderful and so happy to hear because there's things i've heard on this podcast that i'm like well, we learned that in yoga training years ago like now people are just starting to get the science of it it's like we've known this for thousands of years uh, so I think you add some interesting points, and I'm excited to hear what you share here today.
1: Oh, thank, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And um, I guess the first thing I'm going to say is that I love Andrew Huberman, too. And I've been listening to him really almost since he started. I found his podcast. I was like, wow, this is fantastic. So much neuroscience. And and so you know, I, I do have I don't agree with him on everything. <laughs> yep. I know some, some challenges with how he talks about meditation and yoga. Um, but I think just as you said, I really enjoy his podcast and I learn a lot from him. So um, so w- where should we start? Like what what's interesting to you?
0: Well, uh, just going from your blog post on your site, which for listeners, if you want to check it out, it's subtle dot com. And you can search Subtle Yoga Huberman and you'll see her post. Uh, But the first thing on there, you talk about operationalizing ethics is the first step towards co- and self-regulation. And the yoga system offers deep wisdom about this uh, self-regulation via yoga practices. So anything you want to say about that?
1: Yeah, okay, that's a great place to start. So what I find is very typical of folks like Andrew Huberman and other people in the wellness space, especially these folks that are big, you know, whether it's Andrew Weil, whether it's um, Rich Roll, uh, many of the many of the people that are out there that have been out there for years and years, and some of them are new, talking about yoga, what happens is that it is a reductive default. What I mean by that is they go straight to yoga is stretching and yoga postures. Um, I was listening to a physical therapist from England. Uh, I think her name is Celeste. And she has lovely stuff to offer, beautiful content. on. But again, she uh, immediately defines yoga as asana. And and that's a very common thing that we see, not just amongst the scientific community, but amongst the yoga community. We see people defining yoga as asana. So if you're going to talk about yoga as self-regulation, I think it's reductive to say, this means what are you doing with asana to self-regulate? Sure, asanas are self-regulating, but the first process tool of yoga are the yamas and niyamas. And that's laid out in the Yoga Sutra. We start with yamas and niyamas. That's the first of the uh, first two of the eight limbs of Ashtanga. And I would suggest that uh, Patanjali probably would not have defined it as self-regulating tools because that's kind of a modern interpretation. But that's what they are because the idea is you regulate the nervous system so that you can meditate, right? So the first two steps are get your house in order, right? Get your... Yamas in New York, this is meaning the way I co-regulate how I deal with other people, right? Through ahimsa, non-harming, and, and satya, trying to benevolent, benevolently, um, you know, express the truth, not, not the raw, painful truth, but the truth, you know? <laughs> and then and then because you want to have ahimsa in your satya, right? And then so ahimsa satya, and then asteya. Um, not, not stealing and brahmacharya. And I use the tantric definition of brahmacharya, which is more etymological, like seeing Brahman in everything, seeing the oneness in everything, in every external situation. And then, um, aparigraha, meaning like sustainability. And I'm not over you know, I'm not over hoarding. So we have these external ways of, um, co-regulating. And that leads to internal self-regulation, right? And then we have the internal, which are the niyamas. So it's, um, cleanliness and santosh, contentment, and tapas, some kind of sacrifice. And then um, Swadhyaya is doing some study of the, of the texts as well as study of yourself. And then Ishvara Pranidhana, meaning um, seeing what's inside, going inside and seeing that as divine. So Brahmacharya and Ishvara Pranidhana are... Two sides of the same coin, I, I think you would say. It's like seeing the external world as divine, seeing the inside as divine. And then those, so those neons are meant for um, self-regulation as well. And they're more about your, your personal um, ethics or moral uh, stance, you know, or operationalizing those values, if you like. So Kuberman, amongst many of many other scientists, just completely, I don't even know if he knows about it. But does not use that framework uh, or does not include that framework in his definition of yoga or meditation for that matter.
0: Right, which is understandable because the average yoga class in America, you'll never hear anything about the yamas or niyamas, <laughs> which is why
1: people need to go to teacher trainings, right? <laughs> right.
0: right. right. No, it's, it's an interesting thing of like, because that stuff is so crucial. And it's so deep. Like, it's not simple. You can't just, oh, ahimsa. Okay, got it. Move on. (laughs) Check. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't hear anyone today. Okay. (laughs) Right. right The morning routine in that way.
1: (laughs) But I think the yamas and yamas are such a fantastic litmus test. Like, we keep them in mind as we go through our daily life. That's yoga. That's yoga in daily life, in my opinion. Like, great, great. It's good to learn how to do a forward. And some squats so you can do the laundry better. But like really yoga and daily life is how do I operationalize those values?
0: Yeah, and that's, you know, I'm sure it'd be wonderful to hear him do like a whole three-hour podcast on just the Yamas. You know, uh, it, maybe uh, it may be science so will catch up with that in like five to ten years. We'll see.
1: Right. But I would like to hear him do that three-hour podcast with a yoga expert.
0: Yes, yes right
1: because as as you mentioned, ahimsa is not this straightforward non-harming thing there's right. you know there's what did patanjali say about ahimsa ahimsa pratyasthayam right? tatsa nidal when we're in the presence of someone established in ahimsa then you um then your hostile feelings start to fall away i mean that's that's so beautiful and it takes so much um reflection and study so if you have someone who's a scientist who haven't and not to say that he couldn't um understand those concepts of course he could but i mean he's a he's a great guy but if you have someone who's an expert in their field having a conversation with him and how does that affect the moral cognition networks in the brain like that would be interesting i would love to talk to to andrew about that you know (laughs) that would be really interesting to have that conversation so yeah so i i think that i think that it's great to know the the mechanisms but i also think it's i don't think human beings are simply mechanistic
0: right and even with that approach it's uh, in the patanjali uh eight limb ashtanga yoga path it it's many people think of it as sequential like yamas then niyamas then asana and it's so, so the American way to just skip to the physical. <laughs> right,
1: right, right. Skip but right to it. Is, yeah. I, well, I would suggest Patanjali put them in order on purpose. That doesn't mean that you have to practice them in order all the time, but there is a purpose, you know. And when I think about so what was the tradition? Like the story of Milarepa is a good story, right? He's a Tibetan yogi. You could call him a Tibetan yogi. And so he goes to the house of his guru, and the guru is like, I'll teach you something, but first you gotta sweep the floor and build a build a house over there. You know, it's like like that that and then and then he goes back and he's like, Am I ready yet? And the guru's like, you're not quite ready yet. Do a little more. And so like that was a tradition, the way that it was taught, that that we have to kind of work on ourselves before we're ready for some of the initiations, the deeper teach the dikshas, you know, the deeper the diksha is the Sanskrit word for initiation, which I really don't like the word initiation because it sounds like you're going to walk on hot coals or something. <laughs> in the yoga tradition, it was like, here's a little teaching. Go go ahead and take this thing and go away with it for a little while and see how it percolates in you. And then you're ready for the next thing. So I do think Patanjali put them in order for a reason. But that doesn't mean that, you know, that doesn't mean that we have to just take them in that order all entirely but I think there's a there is a progression um and then when you see like to just a little bigger macro perspective so much of the um unethical behavior that we are very conscious of that's happened in the yoga tradition it makes I mean I should say in the western yoga world um and to some extent in India, of course, as well, it makes you think like, oh, maybe we should go back. Maybe we need to circle back to those (laughs) principles. We all make mistakes. Nobody's perfect, of course. But those principles sometimes don't get as much, um, you know, as much airtime as they kind (laughs) of need.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And then this vein of you know, responding to a lot of Hebrewman stuff uh, I like what he does in the podcast where he'll give you like, you know, here's a protocol, here's a practice you could do. So with that kind of in mind, what could you offer to somebody who is listening to this and like, well, I would love to practice the yamas and niyamas? Like, what is a way I could integrate that or begin to integrate that into their into their way?
1: I think one of the best ways is first to memorize them, frankly, and to know these 10 principles. And then when you have them in your pocket, and by the way, the best way to learn them is to teach them to somebody, right? Even yes. if you're not a teacher, but if you are a teacher, like teach them do a do a series, do a 10 week series and bring each principle into your class. And it doesn't mean like, oh, we're not going to harm ourselves doing asana, although that's a nice idea but it's more about like let's meditate on this principle and see how it shows up in your life and here's some homework and next week you can um i'd like to offer you that every day or home study if you like every day you could do 5 minutes of meditation on this principle and what arises for you and how is it showing up in your life and um eventually that practice actually it's what that is swadhyaya right yes. so that practice becomes swadhyaya of like understanding there's a many, many books out there that have deep um, explanations and interpretations of these principles. So understanding what the principle is and seeing how it shows up and, you know, being okay when we fall, we all fall short So being okay when we fall short and, you know, and then learning something from the experience and moving on. So what's a an actionable way to do that? Some people will just like put a post-it note on their fridge that week with the principle on it. And every time you Go to the fridge, you remember that principle that you were going to, um, you know, think about for that day and you can meditate on it during the, you know, you can have a formal seated five minute meditation where you just sit down and see how it shows up and, and be, you know, apply non-harming that first principle to yourself. Right. So all of it, the first principle is non-harming and that is certainly for a reason.
0: And so funny, we're talking about this because my cat just caught a gecko. Oh. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> so I'm actually going to pause the recording and take her outside real quick and take the gecko outside. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, I'm back. Hi. That's kind of ironic. <laughs> it's always funny. Yeah. So it's, anyway.
1: It Dharma to kill the geckos, so.
0: Yeah, you know, she read the Bhagavad Gita. And she's like, <laughs> just what I have to do. That's right. <laughs> I'm a cat. <laughs> so, uh, on that uh, the last thing about that is something I found helpful. Maybe you've heard of this idea, but I just use the five fingers for the five yamas and niyamas. Oh, so uh,
1: yeah, that's nice.
0: Memorize them on each hand, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a nice way to remember it, too. I think it took me a couple of years, took me a few years to actually memorize them. And I realized it was teaching that helped me do that.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. Best way. My teacher would say, if you want to learn yoga, practice it. If you want to master yoga, teach it.
1: Mm-hmm. That's a very good point. Yep.
0: yep. Yeah. So, uh, okay. Let's talk about the next point in your, your blog was about uh, the postures and stretching, you know, we touched on this a little bit, but Uh, They have their own intrinsic value, their own mechanisms for self-regulation, which go beyond the benefits of just stretching.
1: Absolutely. Although there are many uh, neuroendocrine benefits of stretching. But, you know, there there would be some some people would say um, hang on a second here. Some people would say that. um, Some some lineages, and this is not Desikachar lineage, but according to some lineages, and I think you can go back to the Hatha yogis on this, asanas are like energetic packages that have a certain effect, an energetic effect on the system, perhaps through the mechanism of the biofield, if we wanted to talk the science of it. And and creating that shape creates a certain impression in the biofield, which then influences the mind. So I would say that that could be an effect of asthma that goes beyond stretching, strengthening stuff. But if you want to stay on that more mechanistic level of stretching and strengthening, we do have a very, you know, there is research about the myokines, which are the um, um, myo meaning muscle, which are, uh, I guess they're neuro. I don't want to call them neurotransmitters because I'm not exactly sure what they are, but they have an endocrine, a neuro and or endocrine function that has an effect on the the immune system. So we know that there's an anti-inflammatory effect of stretching, which is really important in this age of of so much awareness around generalized inflammation in the system. For example, there's a lot of understanding that Inflammation is now correlated with heart disease at a greater level than, for example, lipids in, in the blood. You know, so, so we have that, there's, a, there's something that we understand that's very important about reducing inflammation in the body and stretching is one of the ways that we do that. There's also some great research from Helene Langevin at the National Institute for Complementary Integrative Health and, and the National Academies of Sciences the director and she's done some really interesting research on uh in animal studies. They were stretching mice or rats, I can't remember, mice or rats. And uh she tells a cute little story about stretching them and she's like, We weren't hurting them. She's like, they really liked it. <laughs> They'd give them like some, a little bar to hold on and the little mice would put their little fingers around the bar and then they'd pull their tail. And the mice would be like, oh, just look good. So like animals stretch, animals pendiculate, you know, they, they stretch their body. They know like intuitively the body knows that stretching is really important. And it has to be for something more than just making you more flexible, you know, and, and even flexibility now is being called out as perhaps not one of the best measures of health anymore. Like they're thinking about dropping that from the measures of health. Um, so, so you know, there's there's got to be other things going on in asanas than just that. Um, there's some kind of package. And I think the best example is sitting in... Either Padma Asana or Ardha Padmasana, locus, uh, lo- Lotus Pose or Half Lotus Pose or Happy Pose, Sukhasana, right? Because I don't think you know. I used to sit in Lotus Pose. I'm very conflicted about it because when you that that putting your body in that pose puts your mind in a very clear, concentrated place. So I like the pose but i hate what it did to my knees and so you know you have to find this balance it's for some people they've got that kind of genetic or use dependent hip mobility that is just no big deal but for us mere mortals (laughs) you know i was much more my use dependency was much more in tennis and running and sports as a young person so not in sitting in, in lotus pose so you know, it's a use dependent and genetic, there's use dependent and genetic factors, whether or not you can do that pose. I wish I could sit in that pose still because it does something to the mind. So again, that's not just about stretching your hips, that there's some kind of an energy signature, if you'd like, in a pose like lotus pose. And science and Dr. Huberman probably have, you know, do not have the Um, subtlety yet to explain that until we really go deep into the biofield and have much better understanding of it I think that's going to be a hard one to explain
0: and when you say that like go deep into the biofield I'm like what do you mean by that is there like potential newer research around elements of things that may tell us about like what's happening energetically in the body in a pose or something like that
1: I think so. I think we're at the cusp of that. So uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but there was a um, embryologist, I think is his field. I think he was from the Ukraine. I'm probably getting this all wrong. Somewhere in Eastern Europe. <laughs> and he, he's the one who recognized that there's a force that takes two cells in conception to a baby nine months later. It's not genetics there's a force a life a life force energy if you like and he labeled it the morphogenic field leader that has been that the term kind of opened up into the biofield because there were other people researching it too but the and, and you know of course the people who do things like reiki and energetic healing and all that sort of stuff they've been working with that they're just like not, nothing new <laughs> working with that forever but the scientists are now acknowledging it. And that's what makes it kind of interesting in in light of the conversation about somebody like Andrew Huberman. Uh, If scientists are now acknowledging the biofield, um, what does that, what is the biofield doing? So we know it does stuff like it heals wounds in adults. We know it's responsible for neurogenesis. We know it's responsible for, um, you know, it, it has a lot to do with growth. Um, and constantly regenerating our bones, all the things that we do, skin, you know, all the things that we do without thinking about it. The biofield is involved in those things. Um, And so in some ways it's like a, or the morphogenic field, if you like, you know, depending on what you're talking about. So at first it was sort of scientifically it was discovered in the embryology um, field and then started to seep out into other Places. And some scientists are going to issue it because it seems too woo-woo out there, ubi-abi, you know. Um, but other scientists are embracing it. People like Shemini Jane. You can look up Shemini Jane. She's doing some really interesting stuff with the biofield. And I think it's going to help us to understand the subtle body eventually. Um, now, if you... If, you, if you're coming from like a Desikachar lineage, there's a lot of conversation about the subtle body not being real, it being a symbol system, for example. That's certainly the way that Gary uh, Craftshead teaches that. And that's fine. Like people have different ways of understanding different things, you know. And there are scientists like Candace Pert, Hiroshi Motoyama, although he was like kind of one foot in each world, you know, one foot in the science, one foot in the mystical world. And some and Rupert Sheldrake I think is an interesting scientist to, to, who talks about these things who would say that these biofields um, are connected to uh, the 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 central channel. See, I don't know if Rupert Sheldrake would say that, but certainly Carolyn certainly Candace Pert before she passed the central channel right and the central channel is a yogic terminology shushumna. That's the yogic terminology for the central nervous system, essentially, or the subtle body counterpart in yogic terminology for the central nervous system. There's a map there, if you'd like. And you can see so much of this map, for example, the two petals of the agya chakra, the, the third eye chakra, are going to somehow be the energetic scaffolding that the two hemispheres of the brain um, emerge from, if you like, because the body is a manifestation of the subtle in, according to the, um, ac- according to the uh, trika system, the, the, the subtle body system or the, um, the I'm sorry, it's not trika, it's the um, sharira, the d- doctrine of the sharira, the three bodies, right, from Vedic terminology, that there's a causal body that causes us to come into existence and we have the subtle body and the subtle bot from the subtle body emerges the physical. And that is not scientifically unsound anymore. You have a cause that for some reason makes that particular sperm and egg come together. And then you have the biofield, which is the subtle uh, scaffolding around which the physical structure emerges. It it makes perfect sense scientifically, at least in my mind, um, if we're considering the biofield, right? So, so anyway, people like um, Candace Pert would say that that um there are physical correlates of the chakras. She saw a particularly important VIP vasoimpressive peptide, which is a particularly important neuropeptide for turning on and off uh, immune switches, and she noted that in specific areas where the chakras are specific in the spinal cord, where chakras are specifically. Uh, traditionally located, right? So we have some of this sort of um, nascent scientific uh, understanding around some of these, just like you said in the beginning, around these traditional things that that the yogis knew for a long time that's starting to emerge. And as that science gets better, frankly, I don't know if it's going to get better using mechanistic tools. like The tools might have to become more subtle and sophisticated too, which I think is very interesting. And interface with the mind, like for example, some kind of AI, some kind of, I don't know if it's AI, but some kind of a a human um, AI interface where we start to be able to have some kind of a grasp on the mechanisms that are going to be an intersection of the mind and the physical. It's going to be that intersection. I think quantum physics is that intersection, uh, demonstrates that intersection of of consciousness and the physical. And I think that's what's going to emerge. I've been talking for a long time. Do you want to say in- <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think uh, quantum computing has a lot of promise for doing stuff so far beyond what we are thinking is yeah. possible so far with computers and technology and science and um, but in this biofield that, that would include the electromagnetic field of the body as well right
1: yes electromagnetic yeah
0: yeah mm-hmm. and that's kind of maybe the most scientific stuff we have about the uh, the biofield thus far and like research on the bi- electromagnetic field and like the hearts field and these kind of things but still like not much right
1: yeah i, I wouldn't say i'm an expert on that but um there's you know, Shamini Jane is a good person to look into. She's got some interesting stuff out there. And certainly there have been people that have been looking, like the people that study fascia, right, and acupuncture. Um, and there's an awareness that the fascia is uh, the, is intersecting with the biofield.
0: Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's just uh, so interesting to imagine uh, where that could be, especially with quantum computing in like five, 10 years and being able to measure this stuff. You know, it's. But we can feel it. It's like you do an Austin, a practice.